0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is Dr. Eilish Gregory, and we're talking about her new book, just releasing this month with Boydell Press, titled Catholics During the English Revolution, 1642-1660, Politics, Sequestration, and Loyalty. Eilish, congratulations on your book, and thanks for joining me today on the show.
1: Well, thank you very much, and um, thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Well, I was so glad to have gotten the chance to read this book and I'm looking forward to hearing more from you about it. Uh, But before we do that, can you tell us some about your own background and maybe what led to your work on this project?
1: Yes, um, absolutely. So um, my background um, is in history. So I did my undergraduate and my MA degrees at the University of Kent uh, with my MA specializing in medieval and early modern studies and I completed a PhD in history at um, University College London in 2017. And so this project, um, so the the book project as such, um, sort of sprung about from research I did during the PhD and then developed much further beyond the PhD, um, looking further into Catholic loyalty and the wider scope involving Catholics during this very important period in early modern British history.
0: Yeah, well, that's 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 really terrific. And I'm, I'm really glad you've written this book, Eilish, because this is such a rich period in English history to draw from. Um, so why don't we begin quite broadly with the title of your book? Uh, what what was the English Revolution and how did Catholic sequestration fit into the story of revolutionary politics?
1: Um, Absolutely. So the English Revolution um, is a term that's generally used to refer to the civil wars that occurred um, from 1642 to around 1651. Though, as you can tell from the title of the book, I go to 1660, which was when um, Charles II was um, invited back to England after the events of the Civil War, where he, he and his family went into exile. Um, so, the English Revolution, as such, is covering the Civil War period when Charles I was fighting against Parliament. So, it was royalists versus parliamentarians. And then, in the aftermath of when the king was executed, and then when England was living in, into a period of republicanism. And so, uh, sequestration, as such, and particularly Catholic sequestration, fits into this narrative quite well in that um, sequestration was used as a means to punish those who were deemed to be enemies of the of parliament as such, so those who supported the royalist cause, those who were believed to have caused the war as such, so Catholics or pa- Papists as such, so those who are believed to be of Catholic origin, but supporting, um, yeah, advocating as such, um, the overthrow of, um, royalist, of royal r- rule as such and of liberty, and reformed religion and so it it sort of came about with that and it's and it continued to even though it was generally used to punish those during the civil war period as such it continued to be used quite a lot during the commonwealth period as well and it just continued to evolve throughout this very intense 18 year period
0: yeah. well now, what can you tell us of, of the history of sequestration and in anti-Catholic penal law? Was was this something that originated during the sixteen forties, or had it been a practice that dated back further? And 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 was it something that was just expanded upon?
1: It's something that dated um, back way before the English Civil War. So, it its origins, sequestration had been around intermittently throughout much of the Middle Ages, but normally designed to um, punish those who were Enemies as such so we see this, you know, in the aftermath of um, the murder of Thomas Becket, for example. So it's used sort of very sporadically during the Middle Ages, but we see it really taking off um, in the 16th century. Um, after the Reformation and, and du- during the Elizabethan period. So it was designed to punish Catholics who were, f- were refusing to conform to Protestantism by absenting themselves from attending church every Sunday in their local parish church or attending church on Holy Days and taking communion in accordance with the Church of England. And so we start to see legislation um, appear from around 1581 onwards and then start to redevelop towards the end of Elizabeth's reign in 1593 and in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot um, which occurred in 1605, but legislation appeared in 1606 designed to punish Catholics who were believed to... Who were refusing to conform but also those who were refusing to swear allegiance to the monarchy and that the pope had no right to absolve catholics on their loyalty to the monarch and to overthrow them as such so it had been in existence way before the civil war period Yeah,
0: that's really helpful well as as we look to the decades ahead that your book addresses during these periods of political change, heightened tension, you begin with two chapters that analyze the committees for sequestrations and for compounding alongside the numerous acts and ordin- ordinances uh, and orders that were passed by successive parliaments. Can you tell us what did the long parliament mean for the sequestration in, in England? Uh, they, cre- they created quite a, a bit of change, didn't they?
1: Oh, absolutely. So. I think what's really fascinating with the Long Parliament is that they really evolve how sequestration is run, because this is this all occurs in the early in the early months of the Civil War, and so obviously Parliament is is trying to deal with different fronts. They're trying to deal with fighting occurring in the north with Charles I and his northern army, and, w- and which Catholics are starting to be um, recruited in the army under the Earl of Newcastle, and you're and they're also dealing with um, trying to uh, confiscate lands from bishops, archbishops, those who they were deemed to be popish. So even though that they were members of the Church of England and Protestant, they believed that they were part of the chain of events which led to the Civil War. Because there's lots of factors um, which I cover in the introduction in the build-up to the Civil War. So you had the Bishop's War that occurred, then you had the Irish Rebellion. And so these were all contributing factors towards the English Revolution occurring. And so as a consequence, Parliament was trying to work out how to deal with all these broad enemies in as far reaching ways as possible. And so one of the ways they decided to do that really was through sequestering, which is the term for confiscating the estates of people. So that's what they call the real and personal estates of people. So that's their land, their property, their personal goods and their tenements if they are landowners and that sort of thing. And so we start to see from around late 1642, so just a few months after the Civil War started as such, with Parliament trying to work out which groups of people they should sequester estates from. And so by the time it comes to March 1643, which was when um, we start to see this, the ordinance passed at the very end of March, which actually stipulates all the different groups which are going to be sequestered and so what's really interesting about the legislation is that it's not just including Catholics but a lot of the attention goes towards those deemed to be enemies of parliament so we're talking mainly royalists we're talking archbishops bishops deans and chapters but Catholics are in there as well and what's really fascinating really is that parliament is obviously taking initiative of the original format that um, of, of sequestration had been used against Catholics, but were adapting it to suit their immediate need. And obviously back in 1642, 1643, they didn't think the war was going to last as long as it did. And so what's really fascinating is that you see this evolution happen from 1642 to 1648, where they're obviously trying to adapt as the war progresses. And then they have to try and deal with the aftermath of the, the first civil war ended in 1646 on what to do with all these people who had fought against them or the Royalists. And then obviously um, this continued after the second civil war which happened just for very briefly in 1648. And for those in the aftermath of um, the execution of Charles I, we have Royalists at home and abroad trying to um, overthrow the Republican regime as such. And so you start to see, you see that that the um, legislation towards sequestration continually evolve across this period and with the enemies changing over time, depending on the the situation at that particular moment.
0: Well, you you go on to talk about uh, the sequestration and the compounding process, how it was intended to work in the context of political messages uh, put out by the current regime. Can you tell us how did these messages and the new legislative measures affect the attitudes of citizens in the commonwealth particularly for for how they view each other either either as friends or enemies
1: i mean is what it's really really interesting question um, cuz it cuz it obviously the rhetoric of um segregation acts ordinances is always very um, aggressive in a way in that um, you know if you if you do if you're fighting against us, against parliament, and obviously we're going to take all this away from you. You're, it's, all, it's going to be confiscated until you've paid your fines or you've you know sworn these certain oaths of allegiance, whether it's the negative oath, the engage oath of engagement, oath of abjuration, etc. And obviously, having terms like you know saying who the enemies of the state are. Of the status essentially, which is, you know, including Catholics, including Royals. So it that is quite a serious and quite an aggressive tone. But what's really interesting, and this kind of fits in what other historic, Catholic historians have done for other parts of the early modern period in Britain, is that rhetoric versus practices is very, very different from each other. So even though you, you see um, officials, carrying out their duties according to what they've been asked them from the committees in London or from Parliament, um, at the same time, if it's known people people in their communities, on the whole, they're generally quite kind to them, Depend, but obviously depending on how they get on with them to begin with, because obviously, um, if, you're, if you don't get on with your Catholic neighbour to begin with, you're not probably going to show any deference to them mm. if they're being sequestered. <laughs> but um, I mean, there's one really interesting example in the book where... Um, Penelope Gage from Hengrave Hall in Suffolk. Um, her house has a has a, a night raid to take all her confiscated we- to confiscate weapons from her house. And what's really not interesting about the letters that I looked at and which feature in the book is um, that the officials apologise for the night raid. They said we're really sorry to do this. We've been told from London we've got to do this, but we'll make sure that we that all your weapons aren't damaged and we'll take good care of them. And then they write a letter to Penelope Gage's mother shortly afterwards to ap- apologize again for doing the raid. And so that's, so it gives you glimpses of um, of how of how communities work even within this environment, that like, even though they're having to follow um, guidance and um, legislation from London, at the same time, you know, they will show, show kindness to, to Catholics who they mm. trust and are friends with. I mean, you know, people that they're gonna encounter in their everyday lives. So, yeah, it's been really, really fascinating research to do this across this period as well, because the 1640s um, and 1650s hasn't really been covered in in, hmm. in, in English history for, from the Catholic perspective before. So it's really fascinating to just get glimpses of how Catholic and Protestant relationships work for this very volatile period.
0: Yeah, it really is quite fascinating. And another issue that you bring up in the book is this this issue of growing Print cultures in in the in the Civil War years and interregnum that really played no small part in the dissemination of political news. How did Catholics utilize the information that was being printed on the sequestration process?
1: Um. Yeah. I mean, that's again, that's a really good question. So, what's really interesting in some of the county record um, papers that I looked at for some of these families is that you see how these different acts ordinances. And sometimes pamphlets are being circulated across the country and obviously with um, the lapsing of the print uh, licensing act in the, at the start of the english revolution you start to see an explosion of print everywhere and you start to see parliament really utilizing um print to get their message across across you know across the country as such mm-hmm. and so and i covered this particularly in chapter three in that um official acts and ordinances are published within days of them being passed and so it's, it's a good way to try and get the message across and um, what I saw really in in how we know that we can see how Catholics really utilize this information in these official acts and orders and ordinances is by how they reference it in their um, petitions so we see Catholics referencing quite a lot the you know um, Artful surrender for the for like Truro in Newark and in other places, so places where Catholics have been captured when they had fallen into Parliamentarian hands, and there's and they're pretty much saying sometimes word for word what these orders are saying, which would have been printed, or at least been handwritten and circulated to other Catholics. So obviously, man, um, manuscript circulations were still in operation alongside print in this period. But you also see occasionally in some county record offices as well. In depending on, because obviously some Catholic family records vary depending in abundance of records. So some will have hundreds and hundreds of documents, and some will have uh, probably only a couple of couple of dozen manuscripts. But what's really interesting in these is when you see the printed versions, and it, and you have um, handwritten marginalia where they've asterisked bits of the acts. And they've written notes next to it. So they, so you can clearly see, see the thought process on how they're going to go about petitioning to get their estates back or to how they should go about you know trying to compound for their estates. So that's been really, really fascinating to see that and see how they're trying to work out themselves how to compound for their estates. Because of because um compounding really altered during the Civil War period, because beforehand, Catholics just needed to admit that they that you know they hadn't gone to church, they pay a found a fine based on the, the estate's value, and, and then they just get a receipt at the end, whereas now they're having to justify why they've been sequestered to begin with, why they should be allowed to compound for their estates, and and then go through the evidences that they've done to prove that they should be able to compound. So it's, so it's, a really, it's really, really fascinating how, how it completely um, changes in this period.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. And, you know, you brought up, you brought up the petitioning Um, as we look, as we look more to the compounding process and and Catholic experience, what you address near, near the middle of the book. uh, What can you tell us of the main, the main themes, the main arguments that were being used by Catholics in their petitioning, or or could you tell us something of of the general structure of, of these petitions?
1: Yes, of course. So, um, as I've just mentioned a minute ago, it generally follows a, a, I mean, all petitions, and it's not just Catholic ones, it's also like royalist ones I've also looked at as well. They generally follow the same format to so say who they are, what their rank is, so obviously if they're a gentleman, if they're a peer, if they're, a, you know, a tenant or some, something like that. I mean, I generally looked at gentry Catholics, but obviously you do see occasionally other ones from lower ranking stating what their, their social status is as well. What they've been sequestered for? So, have they been sequestered for recusancy papist delinquency, or delinquency? And this and delinquency um, is referring to being a royalist in this case. So, but that's the term that they use in the petitions. And then they go do the explanation of why they think that they should be allowed to petition. So, you know, if they've been sequestered for delinquency, they 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 will either admit that they were fighting against the you know for the they were fighting for the royalist cause or that they, they were in that garrison, but they weren't fighting against the, the parliamentarians and they give reasons why, so whether it's because of, they were there because of religious persecution or wrong place, wrong time. But, and also, you know, if they're a Catholic, you know, that they admit that they are Catholic and they just, you know, hadn't gone to church or hadn't conformed as normal. And then normally after that, they will say, you know, I've, I have taken the said oaths that have been required of them, whether um, they have paid the first half of their compounding fine or if they've done other um, remits which they've been asked to do in order to successfully compound for their estates and be discharged of their sequestration. Because so it's all about getting discharged from being sequestered or having their estates confiscated. Because obviously if they if it's confiscated, they can't live off that land, they can't, they can't have their goods back. So it's quite important to try and get their... Sequestration Indictments Discharge. And with the um, petitions, what's really fascinating is you, um, with the amount that I looked at, I looked at probably over a thousand petitions for this book from from different Catholic families. And what's really fascinating is you start to see common themes com- cropping up throughout this whole period. So you get things mentioned like, oh, that they couldn't compound for their estates because there's been delays from the local county Sequestration Committees or there's been corruption involved, so sometimes they might start accusing key figures in either the county sequestration committees or even in the committees for sequestration or for compounding in London that they're not um, doing their duties diligently. But also you start to see other themes cropping up, so where they said that they've um, fled, uh, that they were in royal scarrisons, for example, because they fled religious persecution, so if soldiers were roaming the countryside and pillaging, that they... Obviously, left their houses and went to seek safety, which would be the nearest fort, stronghold. Which, in the in the case of some of them, was a royalist stronghold. And so, it's really interesting to see this 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 similar themes cropping up. So, I think what needs to be done more probably in the future on this is see, you know, is is there some sort of like unofficial like guidebook that's going around for advice on how to do this? Because, because obviously. The fact that they that they're saying the same thing over and over again suggests that they are they're following a very similar formula, which they would have had to have picked up along the way. So either through counsel or whether just through spending hearsay or just reading the acts and ordinances and just following it and just working out for themselves that this is the form that they need to do. So, so it's been really, really fascinating just to see how it all works together, really, in these petitions.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciate how in this chapter you even go into their their efforts to be creative and persuasive, even, even navigating and exploding loopholes um, in their petitions. Another thing that you pick up uh, in the fifth chapter, something that I find really interesting, uh, when, you're, when you're looking at the appeals made, especially to Parliament, is, is the Catholics' pursuit of legal counsel for guidance in their sequestration cases. Can you tell us uh, how these correspondences, especially between family and state state papers, they influenced your finding here for this this fifth chapter?
1: Yes, of course. Um, so, um, um, you you'll you often find in these types of petitions that you'll see references to. Um, the fact that they've sought counsel. So they say, I sought counsel on this, but they don't name who the person is, which is quite frustrating, of course, because obviously you want to know who is the person they're approaching. Is there like a little network or is everyone going to the same person? But what's really interesting, you really start to see this taking shape in the 1650s, so during the Republican era. And you can tell that. Um, Catholics and others so it's not just Catholics it's other people who who are still reeling from the effects of sequestration and trying to compound for their estates in the 1650s seeking legal counsel from the inns of court in London so Gray's Inn and other inns, of, inns there and so you start to see more trying to seek more professional legal help those who can try and see if there's anything to help them with to get their estates back or to try you know lessen the fines or to try and just get the estates back, and two key figures that crop up quite a lot in the Catholic estates were two figures so Gilbert Crouch and John Rushworth. And John Rushworth, um, for those who um, may be familiar with early modern history, um, is famous for his uh, for being a historian later in life and writing his book about, about this period just towards the end of the um, 17th century. And what's really fascinating with these two men, is that they're purchasing really vast estates, particularly in the north of England, of Catholic and Royalist estates. And they're doing this um, to not only, because at the the request of the families, or from their wider family, um, asking for them to help their relatives who have been sequestered, but they're also, you know, living off these estates as well. So John Rushworth was, was living off the rents of these lands, you know, from, lands like the Constables and other places, um, other families in Yorkshire and in Northumberland, but also Gilbert Crouch in Lancashire and Yorkshire was doing the same as well. But they clearly had quite a good relationship with them. I mean, what was quite interesting with looking at Gilbert Crouch, for example, in the Lancashire Record Office with the Blundell family, which is a very famous um, family that is used quite a lot by Catholic historians for this period, is that in the accounts books there, um, it's really fascinating that you see the copies of the letters that he sent to Gilbert Crouch and then he and the you know Nicholas Blundell and William Blundell for example are really thankful for all the help that Gilbert Crouch is doing like he's he's sending them copies of stuff from London about their estates and you know they're they're, they're saying you know when you've sorted out you know here, here's a bit of money as a reward for what you've done and so it is something that needs to be studied in a lot more detail. Because I mean the problem with legal counsel is that obviously because they're trying to protect estates, the they're not trying to leave a paper trail at the same time. So the fact that um, I managed to see a glimpse of this through um Rushworth and Crouch through a couple of families was really was really fantastic because again, they you know these lawyers are clever enough to not to try not to leave a paper trail because otherwise if they get caught, which um Rushworth does at one point. <laughs> um you know it's going to have repercussions for them about that about their dealings as such and so I think this uh, um what my chapter raises I hope is just scratches the surface I think there needs to be a whole big project on this and um I have looked more into legal counsel and lawyers for the other research I'm doing um at the moment because you start to see it becoming really more professionalized from the late 17th century onwards. And so I think that this is where we start to see the beginnings of this really um, taking shape in becoming professionalized in helping Catholics and for lawyers to help, you know, to make money out of this for professional and legal reasons in helping Catholics protect their estates. Yeah.
0: Well, Catholics were living in such a peculiar, remarkable position, as you say, during, during these years. Now we've talked about the efforts to compound their property talked about or this is something you you speak about in the book being being excluded from the toleration act in the 50s but at the same time not punished for recusancy for a time the interreg the inter- interregnum rather brought in constant debate about toleration it seems public debate about toleration that is how much did catholics participate in the debates on toleration and liberty of conscience.
1: Yeah, I mean Catholics were quite active participants, and um, quite a lot of work has been done on this um, by Irish historians. And um, there's a, a historian, um, Christopher Gillett, um in America, who um, is actually doing quite a lot on this about Catholics and the oaths of allegiance, and in debates surrounding how Catholics should um, sh- show their allegiance to whether it's Parliament or to or to. The Stuarts in this period, so there has so this there's, week, there's, so there's quite a lot of work on this at the moment. Um, but what's really interesting is that because I think before people knew that these sort of discussions were happening, but they weren't really looking into how this is affecting Catholics' perspectives on, on how to you know obviously to protect their estates, but also how to really think about their themselves as as you know English subjects, but also as loyal subjects, but also while not um, denying their Catholic faith and so you start to see quite a lot of Catholic factions appearing mm-hmm. so you have um the Black clothes for example so quite, uh, there's been quite a lot of do- work done over the years um, on the Black Clovis by um Stefania Titino in particular and um you start to see groups abroad you know in the ex you know in the Exile steward court for example to having these discussions about you know if obviously if we continue to try and get the Stuarts back in you know to England what's it going to mean for Catholics when we who, when we come back you know are, are we going to have toleration you know can we have an alternative oath then before for example and in the 1640s there were um, different alternative oaths of allegiance being bandied about and again this is something that um, Thomas Clancy and Christopher Judd have done um, re- work on and it just shows really that um, Catholics were active participants in trying to Mm -hmm. define themselves as Catholic and loyal English subjects and again this is this with the with sequestration this kind of throws this into perspective as well because obviously Mm -hmm. by um, petitioning for example the fact that they a lot of them are starting to use in the 1650s the fact that they were religious victims of the war to justify their loyalty to the state is really really fascinating. Because sometimes you'll see, you know, you know, I'm loyal to Parliament, I'm loyal to my country, but I, you know, I was only in that boy's garrison for my own safety because of religious persecution as such. So they, so they're not trying to deny their Catholicism as such, but they're trying to, at the same time, demonstrate that they're that they're not disloyal, because it, obviously since the Reformation and particularly in the aftermath of the Gunpowder Plot, there's always that question of are Catholics going to be. Are Catholics loyal subjects? Um, can they both be loyal English subjects and also be Catholic in a way? So, so yes, yeah, so you so you see these debates really coming about in the 1650s. But there's no complete unified voice on it because you have all these different Catholic groups. I mean, it's almost like the Protest, Protestant groups as such. You've got all these different Protestant groups springing up and having similar types of debates happening. And Catholics are just the same. They're not. They're not what completely unified on what's the best path forward in their loyalty. So yeah, so it's really, really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I think this is one of the most insightful aspects of your research because you're challenging the the idea that that Catholics were isolated here. But rather they're they're actually active in their engagement with the conversations and and debates about their future. Well Eilish, as we're as we're wrapping up now, can you tell us something of the application you think this book will have on the broader studies of seventeenth-century Britain?
1: Yes, definitely. I'm um, because I mean, the Civil War um, has—I mean, it's never—and the English Revolution, such, has never gone out of fashion in in history. But I think what's quite unique about the book is that it's for the first time really telling the story from the English Catholic perspective, because it has been like mentioned in passing sometimes, but no one's really looked at this in detail and really considered the questions before of how do Catholics define their loyalty? How do Catholics deal with um, the war and, and sequestration? but which I'd had to deal with before, how do they adapt to change and how do they, you know, look at, you know, consider themselves as in, in, in this very chaotic world that's occurring around them. And this is, some, and I think this fits in quite a lot with work that's been done, as I said before, in Ireland, built um, by Irish historians. You see um, a lot of historians, like by F- Francis Nolan, for example, and uh, and Targa Henrehen, John McCafferty and others, really um, looking at the, at this from the 1640s, 1650s, from the Irish perspective. So this is actually, in a way, going to help see the commonalities and differences that are occurring, and maybe this might work out to be a much bigger debate and question about, you know, how do we look at Catholics as a whole for this whole period across Britain? But I think this also fits in with work that's been done before by other historians who do similar themes that I do. So in the works of um, you know John Bossey, for example, for his famous, very famous work, The English Catholic Community, in Michael Kessier's work, who, who's looked at the Catholic um, perspective on um, for early modern England from the 16th century to the early 17th century, but also in the works of Alexandra Walsham and in Gabriel Glickman, who, who actually looks more into the um, Catholic community for the, um, up to the mid 18th century. So I think this actually sort of fits in together, like how the broader period of how do Catholics generally survive and adapt in in England and in and later Britain from the Reformation up to um, the end of the 18th century. So I think it, it was slotting quite nicely but, and also just helped, Answer the questions that people have not really looked at before for this very sort of very strange two decades where it's been a bit of a, um, a bit of a black hole before.
0: Well, I I think you've made a really valuable contribution to uh, the historical work on the Commonwealth, the interregnum, and especially how we think about Catholic uh, English Catholic communities in early modern life. And you've also provided a pretty meaningful backdrop for for the for and backdrop and context for scholars um, of, of English Catholicism who would who would inspect the decades later, subsequent decades in English life in politics. Um, before we go, Eilish, can you tell our listeners what you plan to work on next?
1: Yes, of course. Um, so but well before before um the pandemic, um I have been for the last couple of years um broad really broadening out the long-term effects of sequestration and the long-term discussions of Catholic loyalty evolving with politics and sequestration um, up to the mid-eighteenth century. So looking at the longer period, and also just sort of going back to the early foundations of sequestration as such. So um, I've done, I've had um, a few library fellowships, which have given me the opportunity to sort of do um, test testers in different places to see if there's again if there's any commonalities occurring. So um, I've, I've done research in, um, at the Folger, for example, and also in Dublin and in Durham as well. And so I'm, I've, I've seen, as I mentioned earlier, that how lawyers and counsel have really started to become professionalised and become much more heavily involved in helping Catholics with their estates from the late 17th century onwards. And again, how Catholics are adapting their petitions and their language to get their estates back. At certain periods, um, there's there's a really well. I think it's quite an amusing petition from the in the aftermath of the first um, Jacobite rebellion. So this is uh, just towards 1720, I think, when Catholics are complaining that uh, they haven't been given enough time to compound to sequester and compound for us to compound for estates and such because they. Did it by calendar month rather than by lunar month or something which is which is <laughs> which i think is quite amusing they're getting right down to the nitty-gritty timings by the moon and when they could petition or to at least be allowed to compound their estates because they missed the deadline or something and um i'm ha- what i want to do and i think there's general good scope for it is to look at sequestration and catholic loyalty from through the through the themes that i talk about in the book to look at it from across um, Britain and Ireland, but also in the American colonies and Caribbean as well, because um, a lot of Catholics obviously go to America as well. We see a lot of Irish Catholics in, in the Caribbean as well, like in the Leeward Islands and in Montserrat. And so you start to see Catholics also appealing to lawyers in Britain as well. And also, you know, Catholics who have lands in in America going, can you can you protect my estates? Because sometimes their estates will get sequestered. So obviously there's a famous example of um, Lord Baltimore having to appeal to Cromwell in the 1650s because his estates are are being jeopardised in Maryland. And obviously Cromwell gets involved in that and goes in the favour of Lord Baltimore, even though he's in the eyes of many in the, in the area, a notorious Catholic. And... Um, I'm actually writing a piece uh, involving a law- an 18th-century Protestant lawyer called Edward Northey, who's helping Catholics with their estates in the Leeward Islands, and h- who's heavily involved in the border trade. So I think there's definitely big scope for it. So I'm hoping uh, one day, um, if finance, you know, when the archives open again, and if um, there's the scope to have it as, as a funding project, to actually really look into this in great detail and just to generally see how this all operates across this really vast and important period. And especially, you know, as Britain is expanding as well, because obviously this would be in the context of Britain emerging as a empire as well.
0: Very good. That all sounds really interesting. And and we'll look forward to seeing the fruits of some of that research in the days ahead. But for now, thank you so much for writing this book, Catholics during the English Revolution, 1642 to 1660. And Eilish, thanks so much for joining me on the show today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network.